Strange Stories here again, after a summer break. Well, we've been going for a year now, so this will be the first podcast of Series 2. I'm calling it the Harold Wilson Plots. There were plots to overthrow the Wilson Labour governments during 1968 and 1975, and possibly the Heath Tory government uh, during the early 70s. Barely believable that criminal activity and conspiracy that un- were unpunished while similar actions resulted in Watergate and the impeachment of the President in the United States. Well, thank you for your messages. Um, <clears throat> this is not a widely listened to podcast. I'm getting about a thousand downloads an episode, which I'm happy with, but I've decided to release a podcast every three weeks in order to uh, build up a bank of podcasts develop a website and give more time for background research. I started this particular episode about a week ago and feel that I would have liked to have uh, spent more time on it and found out more. I will make a podcast about Northern Ireland during the early troubles uh, later. A very complicated story, needs much research. Um, Anyway, back to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The next podcast is back to true crime and murder again, but this one is the Harold Wilson Plots, Series 2, Episode 1. Harold Wilson was born in 1916 and died in 1995. He was an academic who became MP in 1945 and later the the most successful Labour Prime Minister in the fact that he won four of the five elections he stood as Labour leader. Wilson was very successful in what he set out to achieve, but is generally considered to be an unpopular figure. At times, whilst he was Prime Minister, polls only showed 20% of people were satisfied with his performance. No government has been so widely disliked since polling began. This podcast will examine the two planned coup attempts with the possible military help that came close to ousting him from office. There was almost constant plotting by sections of the UK and the American security services to undermine his position. These security forces often resorting to criminal behaviour to achieve their aims. Wilson was unpopular with the establishment in 1964 when he became Prime Minister of the UK. The main reason, he wasn't one of them. He was a grammar school boy. The first, uh, the first boy from a grammar school to become Prime Minister. He came from a lower, middle-class family who relied on grants for him to gain his education. Wilson and Labour's objectives were not shared with the establishment, as Wilson wanted a fairer distribution of income within the UK at the expense of the richest. Wilson wanted a meritocracy, which would have threatened the vested interests of the establishment. The British establishment in the 1960s and 70s refers to an elite network, most of whom went to one of the seven Clarendon boarding schools. These were Eton, Charterhouse, Harrow, Rugby, Shrewsbury, Westminster and Winchester. From there they moved on to Sandhurst Military Academy or Oxbridge and then moved into a variety of powerful positions in private or public organisations. Political control operated through the great state institutions of the Church of England, Westminster, Whitehall and the armed forces. The economy was loaded in their favour 
coordinated through public-private partnerships of the Treasury, the Bank of England, the City and business leaders. The elite maintain their collective identity via an exclusive social circuits and activities as popularised by members of the royal family. The social calendar. The BBC and national press ensured that the common people, that's you and me, accepted this state of affairs. The establishment did not like the Labour Party or Harold Wilson. One reason was his perceived hostility to the banking system in London. Wilson was wise to insider trading carried on by the old boy network in the city. Bankers that worked for the Bank of England let their friends in the city know in advance of any change in the bank rate so people could make deals to their advantage before the information became officially known. This was criminal behaviour, white-collar crime, that the banks had been getting away with for years. Wilson was getting to hear about the practice, exposed it in the House of Commons, and Sunday Times at the time noted that Wilson had become enemy number one for the Tories and the establishment as a result of his exposure of the crooked banking system and insider trading. When Wilson became PM, the Tories and the banks started to conspire against him. The Labour government inherited a large balance of payments deficit accumulated by the Tories in their dash for growth during the 1964 election, which made life difficult for the new Labour administration. Balance of payments deficit was basically uh, balancing the books. There was too much spending and not enough selling by the British economy. Wilson has decided that the best approach was to borrow and use Keynesian spending to boost the economy, even if this meant inflationary pressures. During the 1960s, the Bank of England seemed to be working against Wilson and his Labour administration. Although there were conflicting objectives as a result of stop-go policies and trying to find a balance between full employment and the low inflation rates was not easy. Lord Cromer was the head of the Bank of England in the 60s, and thought Wilson's government were in danger of bringing down the economy, as they were doing nothing to reduce the balance of payments deficit, which Cromer considered the most important priority. Cromer wanted Wilson to stop all the modernisation policies he had wanted to introduce and bring in austerity measures to prop up confidence in Sterling. When Wilson refused to take the advice of the Bank of England, Cromer started talking of the need for a national government in order to introduce the necessary cuts in spending required to maintain confidence in the pound and maintain its place as a major trading currency. These ideas started to spread as early as 1964, the idea of a national government. Wilson was seen as a threat to the United Kingdom and that world the establishment had uh, created. Wilson wanted to end capital punishment, decriminalise homosexuality, legalise abortion, give equal rights to women, bring in Race Relations Act, introduce equal play, build council houses for the working classes and even start an open university open to all. In foreign affairs, Wilson refused to enter the Vietnam War, thus probably saving countless young British lives tried to affect some rapprochement with the USSR, took international development seriously. 
None of these policies appealed to the Tories and their establishment friends, whose main interests were getting other people to make money for them. They didn't see any profit in Labour's objectives. Wilson wasn't even liked by many in the Labour Party. In order to explain the reason for this, we have to consider the, his journey in the Labour Party. Wilson, who was elected at the Labour landslide of 1945, was a rising star in the party. He was appointed at the cabinet as a cabinet minister aged 30, 31 as president for the Board of Trade. This was in 1947. Many Labour MPs wanted close links with the socialist USSR after World War II, even though wartime sympathy within the Labour movement for Russia was fading away with the onset of the Cold War. Wilson started to make trips to the Soviet Union as the UK was desperate for timber. They needed the timber imports for the rebuilding programmes. Soviet timber could be obtained on a barter basis, whereas the other main source for timber was the USA, who insisted on payment in dollars. The UK did not have this money. The Conservative right wing and their friends in the security services began to take an interest in Wilson due to his frequent trips to the Soviet bloc. Wilson was seen to be the man who did trade deals with the communists. MI5 thought that the Soviet trade delegations were likely to be used as cover for Russian intelligence officers. American figures had been very wary about Wilson since the late 1940s as he was seen as trading with the enemy. Wilson, along with his Labour colleagues, thought that the Americans were getting hysterical against communism and were putting pressure on their European allies not, not to trade with the, USSR, with the USSR. This was a time when Britain had to form new trade links after old links had been lost during World War II. This was also a time of rationing in the UK and Wilson being in charge of the Board of Trade had to put controls on much of British industry which appeared like Soviet-style state socialism to the free market elements within the Tory party. They saw Wilson as trying to introduce a socialist economy by the back door. Wilson was under constant attack in the House of Commons from these political groups. 1951 saw the Labour budget trying to find money to support the Americans' fight against communism in Korea. They were being pressured by the Americans to support the attack on the North Korean communism. The Korean War was to achieve very little, ending in stalemate with about 5 million deaths. The UK suffered about 5,000 casualties, so it was probably not a, call, uh, a good call by Labour to support this war. Anyhow, Gateskill was a chancellor. He was trying to find money in order to double Britain's defence budget to support the Americans and send troops. Part of his plan to pump money into the defence was to start charging for dental work and spectacles in the recently formed NHS. This was seen as an attack on the free NHS and some Labour MPs resigned in protest, among whom was Wilson, which again served as proof to those in the right wing that uh, Wilson was a left-wing socialist MP who supported communism. During the 1950s, the Labour Party was split there were those that were seen as radical left-wingers, led by Anarinai Bevan, they were called Bevanites, who often consisted of the local party members. And the right-wing of the party supported the trade union bloc, which included the bulk of the parliamentary party. This group were refer referred to as Gatesgalites.
There was a purge in the Labour Party to expel those thought to be communist. Many on the right wing were invited, uh, right wing of the Labour Party, were invited to the USA, all expenses paid by American foundations wanting to encourage capitalism and forge closer links with those against communism. Wilson was never invited, as he was a suspected communist sympathiser who continued to make trips to the USSR as advisor to uh, Montague Mayer timber importers. Wilson had built up friendships within Russia after his dozen or so trips. MI5 were very suspicious of Wilson, as it was inconceivable to them that the KGB had not approached Wilson, and as Wilson had not informed them of any contact, they could only assume that Wilson had been recruited as a spy by Russia. MI5 compiled a file on Wilson known as the Worthington File. Much of the contents was supplied by pro-American Labour contacts. They didn't call the file Wilson in case uh, it became known that they had a file on Wilson, so that's why they called it the Worthington File. It should also be noted here that MI5 and MI6 carried out surveillance for Labour uh, and the government under Wilson in particular against trade unions that were considered a communist threat. So Labour did use MI5 and MI6 when they were in power. MI5 is a secret service department concerned with internal threats to British democracy and economic interests. The service is supposedly answerable to the Home Secretary. In March 2018, the British government finally acknowledged that MI5 agents were allowed to carry out criminal activity in the UK. And they've done this since the service was formed in 1909. Many of those employed as agents for MI5 during the 50s and 60s and 70s were of dubious character and often had their own agenda. They've been recruited through the old boy network. It's been acknowledged that there's been a rogue element within MI5 with right-wing sympathies. During this time, MI5 was not a happy place to work. It was humiliated by the defections of Burgess, McLean and Philby and it was so paranoid that some officers in MI5 thought their Director General, Roger Hollis, was a Russian agent. MI6 saw the departmental uh, department concerned with foreign threats to British democracy and the ec uh, economy. They're also uh, concerned with cyber security. This service is supposedly answerable to the Foreign Secretary. To protect British interests, MI6 carry out criminal activity. And they have close links to the America's CIA Secret Service, which carries out the same function for the USA as MI6 does for the UK. Both MI5 and MI6 seem to be alluring to themselves and seem unsure who they are accountable to. And there's also competition between MI5 and MI6. It's ironic that Wilson was seen as a possible communist and Russian spy by MI5, as he wasn't even a socialist. He believed in a mixed economy, with only natural mon monopolies being controlled by the state, such as water and electricity. Wilson thought private enterprise, as represented by capitalism, was the natural order of, of business. Hugh Gateskill was the leader of the Labour Party from 1955. Wilson, always a practical politician, had voted for him and as a result was made Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. Wilson was a pragmatist that did not vote for his friend Nye Bevan, realising that Bevan was not going to be leader. After the unsuccessful 1959 general election, there was some disquiet among the Labour ranks 
and Wilson challenged Gateskill for party leadership. During this campaign for leadership, there were a number of smears made on Wilson by the Gaskellites in the party. Gateskillites in the party. For example, Harold Wilson's wife, Mary Wilson, supposedly had an affair with a Polish academic in the 1940s. Very unlikely. And Wilson was having an affair with his PA, Marcia Williams, who at that time was divorcing her husband. And of course, the claims that Wilson was a Soviet spy resurfaced. Gateskill, whose policies resembled those of New Labour 40 years later, defeated Wilson in the leadership race. Although Wilson was seen as the unity candidate who could bring together the two warring wings of the Labour. Wilson was made Shadow Foreign Secretary after his unsuccessful challenge. The Gateskillites in the Labour Party did not want unity and continued their purge of the left in the Labour Party. The Campaign for Democratic Socialism was an organisation that was set up. A number of secret committees to organise against socialists in the Labour Party. These were helped by MI5 officers whose sources suggested that up to 31 Labour MPs were communist. MI5's role in this witch hunt was only curtailed when the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, ordered MI5 not to get involved in political squabbles, although this order was largely ignored. Gateskill, the Labour leader and prime mover against the left, fell ill and died of a suspiciously rare illness during January 1963. A flare-up of lupus, an autoimmune disease which affected his heart and kidneys. The anti-Wilson faction in MI5 developed a theory that Gateskill was murdered after a visit to the Russian embassy. They slipped something in his tea or something. This would allow the Russian agent Harold Wilson to take his place as Labour leader. Although this was rather an unlikely scenario, as George Brown, who was deputy leader, would have been the favourite to become leader of the Labour Party. And George Brown was an ardent anti-communist. These rumours started to take hold after the defection of a middle-ranking KGB officer, Antony Galitzin, to the Americans in 1961. Like many of the defectors from Russia, Galitzin soon came to realise that his information was his only capital in the West, and he didn't have much, didn't have to tell the truth in order to get attention. Galitzin told of a KGB plot to murder a Western Party leader and have him replaced by a Russian agent, or a mole. Jesus, uh, sorry, James Jesus Angleton, a high-ranking CIA officer, debriefed Galitzin. Galitzin had picked up that Gateskill had died and there were some doubts over Wilson. He picked this up when he was being debriefed by MI5 officers during a short trip to the UK. MI5 agents had been criticised for their lax methods and their idiosyncratic ways, so it's quite likely that they would have let slip information that Galitzin could utilise in developing stories to the CIA. Galitzin convinced the paranoid CIA that Wilson was a mole and Gateskill had been poisoned. It was typical of such agents at that time to drip-feed information, so the story could be adapted depending on how it was being received. Galitzin had told this CIA that Wilson was a mole after learning that Wilson was made, had made frequent trips to the USSR during the 1950s. The MI6 liaison officer to the CIA in Washington at that time was Morris Oldfield. He was later head of MI6. 
He said the Galitzin, Galitzin revelations were causing confusion within the CIA. Oldfield argued that if you take the thesis of the KGB dispatching a defector to carry out a disinformation programme in order to tie the CIA into knots, the classic operation would be Galitzin. These suspicions reached a climax in 1973, when both Angleton and Galitzin were placed under surveillance by CIA officers. A case of spy, spying on spies, spying on spies. It was later concluded that Galitzin was a sent agent whose mission was to disrupt the West security services with disinformation. Galitzin was involved in what is known as spinning, telling astounding stories to remain the centre of attention. Before he died, Angleton, the CIA boss, admitted that in peacetime disinformation may be the chief job of intelligence services. Nevertheless, there was a group of people within MI5 and MI6 who believed in the Galitzin stories about Wilson. Roger Hollis, the Director General of MI5, referred to this group as the Gascarpo. Morris Oldfield, later head of MI6, had talked about a section of MI5 being unreliable. This Gestapo group were involved in spreading stories about Wilson in the run-up to the 1964 election. The main rumour was that Harold Wilson was having an affair with his private secretary, Marcia Williams. Private Eye magazine has suggested an affair in the past which was developed in the run-up to the 1964 election. But Private Eye also told of a sex smear campaign against Wilson, a bizarre operation that was said to have begun during the weekend in June 1964, when in key spots over the country, men turned up in pubs talking about an alleged intimate relationship between Marcia Williams and Harold Wilson. This was referred to as conservative-inspired black propaganda, a campaign to spread dirt by telling stories in pubs, thus hoping the story would spread and be believed. What is certain is that the Conservative Central Office hired private detectives to follow leading Labour politicians in the lead-up to the 1964 election. Special Branch also carried out a surveillance programme during this time, and several other smear stories were being spread against Wilson, usually accusing him of affairs with research workers, secretaries and even Barbara Castle, a fellow cabinet minister. The tourist smears were to no avail. On the 16th of October, Wilson became prime minister, albeit, albeit with a majority of just four seats. Wilson took action against those working against him and the Labour Party after becoming prime minister. He appointed George Whig to act as a security overlord or spy master to warn of any imminent security scandals. Whig liaised with MI5, who kept him at arm's length while pretending to be useful by supplying him with intelligence. They uh, well, intelligence they considered not harmful. Whig was quite successful in his role, also gaining information on the Tory party, such as when Heath became leader of the Tory party, Whig discovered that Heath was homosexual, which was illegal at the time, and had an affair with a member of the Soviet, uh, I beg your pardon, the Swedish embassy. Such revelations would have been held back and used as trade against any nasty stories that may surface uh, on the side that you're working for. Some of Whig's methods were questionable, to say the least. Consider this. Fred Pert was a Labour minister having an affair with a Labour Party worker. When rumours of the affair spread, 
Wig took the woman out horse racing, while MI5 agents burgled her house to steal her love letters. Pert was presented with the evidence and was told to stop the affair, which he duly did. It's difficult to overemphasise the effect of a sex scandal during the early 1960s in the UK, especially after the Profumo affair, which Wig had a major role in exposing. Wig was in fact the first political spin doctor in the modern sense, a Mandelson-type figure. He became part of what was known as Wilson's kitchen cabinet, the people that Wilson trusted and relied on for advice, rather than his own actual cabinet of Labour ministers, who Wilson thought were plotting his downfall. Chapman Pincher claims that George Whig was later turned by the security state to spy on Wilson. Britain has an unwritten constitution, which allows a certain amount of freedom of movement to those in power. For example, as I write this, the media are talking of the highly centralised executive acting dictatorially because of Brexit referendum has given the credence to an elected dictatorship. Everybody claims to be acting in the interest of democracy. There's nothing new in this. Political experts will always find an excuse in an unwritten constitution for politicians to act in the interests of democracy if the ends justify the means. There's also interpretations of actions to consider. To give an example, we'll look at an attempt to oust Wilson in 1968, a quite well-known plot for which some reason has been laughed off and ignored. The main character in the 1968 plot was Cecil King, or to give his full name Cecil Harmsworth King. King was the Rupert Murdoch of his time. He was one of the most powerful men in the UK during the 1960s. His uncle, Viscount Northcliffe, had founded the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror newspapers and got involved with Lloyd George's government during World War I. His uncle, Viscount Rothermere, controlled the Associated Newspapers Group and dabbled in right-wing politics during the interwar years, thus keeping up the family reputation for autocratic management and political interference. King grew up determined to emulate the great press barons, he was a flawed character, being very arrogant, with an overblown image of himself, but he was said to be deeply reserved, finding human contact difficult, although he was obsessed with sex, telling his first wife that he would like to sleep with a different woman each month. His second wife, Ruth, fed his obsession with reputation and destiny. She claimed to be a psychic and said King had superior powers. It was a member of a, an Illuminati-type group of great men. King believed that society progressed through this ruthless imposition of order by great men, like his uncles and himself. King was chairman of the International Publishing Corporation, the biggest publishing uh, company in the world. One of their titles was the Daily Mirror, which in 1968 sold 5 million copies a day. Uh, these 5 million copies being read by 15 million people. The Daily Mirror was a pro-Labour newspaper. Kling came, uh, Kling, King, I beg your pardon, King claimed that it was his backing that won the 1964 election for Labour. Wilson tried to reward King, making him a life peer, a lord, but King refused as he wanted to be made a hereditary peer. King thought that a life peerage was an insult for a great man like himself. King refused as he wasn't giving anyone a hereditary peerage. 
the Labour Party did not believe in the concept of hereditary peerage. King was furious and began to turn against the Labour Party and accused Wilson and his ministers of arrogance and not consulting him for advice. Under King's influence, there had been attack on the Labour policy and personal attacks on Labour ministers, which had only been hinted at in the past. For example, the Foreign Secretary George Brown was known as enjoying a drink and previously the term tired and emotional had been used when described him as being drunk. The Mirror newspaper started to say that Brown was a drunk and if he didn't stop he was not fit for government. Brown launched an attack on King saying that he had power but no responsibility. It seemed like there had been a new chapter between the press and the politicians now. Labour were in power and personal attacks now were accepted as part of the political landscape. Cecil King was appointed a part-time director of the Bank of England by the Wilson government in 1965. A strange appointment as King had no experience of economics and banking other than he being a media tycoon. It proved to be an unwise decision by Wilson, who had hoped that King would be satisfied working in the centre of banking and, of course, the politics. But King became a captive ear for the bankers, who disliked Wilson. King became a vehicle for these anti-Wilson forces and began to play politics, which of course he was able to do, owning newspapers, to influence public opinion. From 1966, King talked obsessively about an economic crash causing mass unemployment and social chaos. His remedy to avoid this was to have a national government in order to restore confidence. King wanted a national government which included non-politicians, such as businessmen, drafted into the decision-making process. It's thought that King was given this idea by Louis Frank, the chairman of Montague, Samuel Montague Merchant Banks, now part of HSBC. Frank having worked with the security services, including MI6. King's newspapers and other interested parties started to campaign for Wilson's removal as PM and the formation of a coalition of a coalition of the centre government, a national government. Cecil King's right-hand man and editor of the Daily Mirror was Hugh Cudlip. Cudlip having a good idea what the people of the country wanted. During 1967, King sent Cudlip to have a meeting with Lord Louis Mountbatten, who was the Queen's second cousin and the uncle of Prince Philip. The idea was to sound him out on getting involved in a national government. They had another meeting during April 1968 where Mountbatten showed some interest and said he had been thinking along similar lines about a national government. Cudlip suggested that Mountbatten keep a low profile so as not to get involved in any politics so he was a clean pair of hands when required to act. Mountbatten did argue that he was too old at 67 and suggested some other people that would take the role as leader of a national government. During the spring of 1968, the economic problems intensified on the Labour government and rumours of a coup being organised by British bankers in conjunction with Cecil King. Labour came up with a plan to flush out the plotters. Labour began preparing an extraordinary measures called Operation Brutus, allegedly to prop up the value of sterling. This included exchange controls and freezing sterling balances held by foreign banks in Britain. All import quotas on all items except raw materials and foodstuffs. 
were <clears throat> this was all indicative of a socialist command economy. The government were also cutting defence and foreign aid spending and a compulsory acquisition by the state of all overseas securities, a measure only previously enacted during wartime. It would have prevented foreign travel as cash could not be taken out of the country. Such actions would of course shut down the money-making activities of the British banking system and effectively paralyse the economy. Such a prospect would have horrified the banking sector. It's been suggested that Wilson was playing a game of chicken with the hostile banking sector. He had not announced his plans publicly, but knew that they would be leaked to the banks, and so he could see how they were going to react. The message that Wilson was sending to the banks was if you try to overthrow the Labour government, the Labour government will wreck the economy. On May the 8th, 1968, Cudlipping King went to see Lord Mountbatten at his London home in Belgravia in order to ask him to act as a figurehead in a national coalition emergency government, taking in moderates from the Conservative, Labour and Liberal parties. Mountbatten was seen as a non-political choice, although MI5 and the CIA had files on Mountbatten as he was seen as a security risk as he was a homosexual or bisexual with an interest in schoolboys. Mountain Batten was famous for being the last viceroy of India and accepting the Japanese surrender during World War II. But Mountain Batten was vain and had a controversial lifestyle. He was said to be an egotistical man, similar in some respects to Cecil King, having an overblown image of himself. He would not have been a popular choice by the right as he was seen as an appeaser and something of a weak character. Although he had been popular with the general public, who were fed an image of Mount Batten, who liked to mix with celebrities and royalty, and was quite often in the newspapers. The meeting started with Mountbatten, King and Cudlip. According to King, Mountbatten was very concerned about the state of the nation, saying that the Queen was desperately worried over the whole situation, and was asking him, Mountbatten, what the best action was to take. So in effect, Mountbatten was indicating that he had the informal authority of the Queen. King told Matt Batten of his fears and his apolitic visions for Britain. Mountain Batten knew why King had come, as he'd been approached before to act as a figurehead of a coup, and he knew that King was trying to organise a coalition government. King spoke of the fears of his fears of approaching economic collapse and ineffectual government, leading to social unrest. Mountain Batten told of how low the morale was in the armed forces and that the Queen was receiving an unprecedented number of petitions over concerns for the well-being of the country, and she was desperately worried over the whole situation. Mountbatten asked what he could do, and King told him to stay out of public view until he was needed. By this time, Mountbatten's friend and advisor, Solly Zuckerman, joined the meeting. It's not known exactly what was said, but at some point Zuckerman left saying it was treachery to speak of machine guns at street corners, advising Mountbatten to have nothing to do with the plans. Soon after this the meeting broke up. Mountbatten had been offered the position as head of the, the coup, or the head of the national government. The film was being planned to show the country after the coup 
with Lord Mountbatten and the Queen Mother and other arist aristocrats explaining why it had to be done because they wanted their green and pleasant land back. Regarding armed force in military action, it was later said that the only force to be used was to restore order. Mountbatten later told Zuckerman that he would greatly regretted his meeting and seemed to wash his hands of his part by saying that he had reported to the entire conversation to the Queen, as if this excused his actions. Cudlip later said that King had talked about violence and bloodshed on the streets, docks and factories that would have been beyond the control of the police to subdue or contain. Cudlip, although very close to King, was worried that King was overstepping the mark and putting the future of the Daily Mirror and ICP in a dangerous position by encouraging rebellion. It's difficult to think that Zuckerman would have left the meeting so abruptly unless there had been treason treasonable talk, as suggested by Cecil King. It could be asked, what does restoring order actually mean? It could be used as cover for an overthrow and dictatorship. Around the same time, in 1973, Augusto Pinochet was said to be restoring order when a military coup took over from a democratically elected social government in Chile, this resulting in torture and the murder of thousands of civilians. Cecil King had said that at some time the Crown would have to intervene to give the coup some moral authority, as the troops had, were, had to be used to maintain order. The military's oath of allegiance was not to Parliament but to the Crown so they could act on the Mountbatten's orders, as he had the backing of the Queen. So in King's opinion, it would have been illegal, it would have been legal to use troops to overthrow the government of the day, as in his mind, it would not have been a coup. Zuckerman later claimed Mountbatten had been intrigued by King's suggestions of him leading a coalition centrist government in the country's time of need. Zuckerman, in his autobiography, was to hint that Mountbatten who had tried to restrain him from leaving, may well have gone along with the plans if he, Zuckerman, wasn't there. Mountbatten's biography argues that Mountbatten did not did want strong leadership from a government of national unity, but only if achieved through constitutional means. However, given the UK's unwritten constitution, it could be fudged that if Parliament had failed to run the country and there was a breakdown in the rule of law, the Crown could instruct the army to restore order, and this would not be seen as a coup, as the Crown is the overriding power in the land. There is evidence that Mountbatten continued to meddle in the constitutional affairs up until the time of his death in 1979. Rumours and different aspects of the coup story were to leak out later, suggesting that planning was invo had involved many more people in the coup than just King and his immediate group. Senior civil servants, the military and large corporations and business groups were thought to have been more deeply involved than had been suggested at the time. One senior army officer had said that planning had reached the point of, designing the uh, of designating the Shetland Islands off the north coast of Scotland as a home for internees. Also, lists of acceptable trade union leaders have been drawn up. MI5 admitted that they knew of the, pl of the plotting, but their official line was that they put it down to unsubstantiated rumours. The book Smear, Wilson and the Secret State by Stephen Dorrell and Robin Ramsey, 
state that the British coup would have been organised by sporadic consultations and tentative approaches between one section of the establishment and another. An informal network of clubs and luncheons, which greases the act activities of British elite groups, would bring together an overall approach. It was almost an organic process, an idea spreading and developing, as the message spread through influential people in positions of power. Cecil King's diary and other fragments of evidence are said to show this process in action. After his meeting with Mountbatten, King continued to put his plans into action. He resigned his, dicta his uh, directorship of the Bank of England and arranged the Mirror Group to print a front-page story, Enough is Enough, where he claimed that the Labour government were hiding a massive deficit in, the fi in their finances and the Labour government were trying to mislead the country. It's thought the King was trying to generate a final run on Sterling which would bring the government down. King had made the mistake of telling Labour ministers of his plans for a national government when inviting them to, uh, to join his coup. Tony Benn, when approached by King, informed Wilson of King's plans and then gave an interview to the Guardian newspaper exposing King as a megalomaniac who wanted to will power without responsibility by organising a coup against the Labour government. It's interesting to note that, probably as a result of his actions, there's evidence of right-wing plots to murder Ben, if he ever became Prime Minister. The right-wing group, GB75, later stated that if Ben ever became Prime Minister, they would take him out. King's actions backfired on him, though. He did not get the support he expected from other newspaper titles. And as he had impeded the editorial independence of the Daily Mirror, the board of the IPC demanded his resignation. He refused to resign and was dismissed by the board by the end of the month. King was now being ridiculed in the press. The Times newspaper said that King's actions were more likely to close the ranks of Labour behind Wilson. The Observer said that Wilson looked a straightforward character by the side of the devious Mr King. The Sunday Express called King a fool who babbled nonsense and the cover of The Private Eye carried a statement by Cecil Harmsworth Gnome, illustrated as the Little Napoleon with the caption, It's not for me a mere lunatic to suggest who should lead Britain to recovery. Suffice to say that he should be none other than myself. In 1987, under parliamentary privilege, it was revealed that Cecil King was an MI5 agent. However, what does this mean? There's little doubt that MI5 had leaked stories to King to publish against Wilson leading up to 1968. The Mirror Group had been cooperating with the intelligence services for some years. The Private Eye magazine in 1966 had exposed the fact that the Mirror Group newspapers were funding Encounter magazine, previously funded by the CIA, which was a left of centre intellectual publication that put a positive slant on American foreign policy. Cecil King was a centrist liberal, but was he an agent for the security services? Probably it was more a case of King having lunch with an MI5 person who gave and took information. <coughs> so, more networking than spying. Similarly, King would have had lunch and exchange information with senior figures in the Labour and Trade, uh, trade Union movement. And he would often obtain certain pub... Uh, pub often he would often fund certain politicians who would give him information that he would not otherwise have known about. 
It has been suggested that the origins of the coup plot were in the major anti-Vietnam demonstrations that started in October 1967 in London, as the authorities were completely unprepared for the scale of the dem demonstrations. The police overreacted, and students and others were shocked, to say the least, when police turned on them with truncheons. This was not supposed to happen in the peaceful UK, where the middle-class students were attacked by the police. This started a change of opinion by many about the police methods and the role of enforcing the rule of law. Questions were being asked. Were the police independent, or did they favour the established powers by defending their interests? The fact that it was thought that the forces of law and order could not contain the political protests, in part encouraged by a Labour government, sent a message to some that something had to be done. Subsequent demonstrations seem to have been tainted with agent provocateurs, probably CIA-backed, to turn the demonstrations violent so the public opinion against the demonstrators and allow the public opinion to sympathise again with the police. MI5 and Special Branch had infiltrated protest groups and produced forged leaflets calling for violent demonstrations. Undercover police were being used for the first time in the UK. This could all be seen as subtle tactics against the Wilson government, who were refusing to back the Vietnam War, and presumably those demonstrating violently would have been Labour supporters. It was also known that the security services had a number of news stories that put a bad light on Wilson and his government, which were being stored up and released at a time suitable to cause most damage. The Daily Express being a commonly used source for these stories. Chapman Pincher, the defence correspondent, used stories that were often years old and leaked out when he wanted to make a point or divert attention. Pincher was a very useful conduit for MI5 leaks. Although King was gone, his network continued to operate against Wilson and drip-feed bad news stories for the government. Constant rumours about ministers falling out and about to resign were manufactured. The results affected the value of the pound and put pressure on the Labour administration. William Rees-Mogg, the editor of the Times, took up King's mission, calling for a national government and attacking the record of Wilson's government. The pressure on the uh, Labour government at that time seemed relentless. As a result, plotting continued against Wilson, mostly from the right wing of his own party. David Owen, one of the ministers at that time, said there was endless talk about Wilson being a liability to the party, but as it was all talk and all the time, people became used to it as background noise. So in a way, Wilson's position was protected by the ambitions and jealousies of all those who criticised him. Main players in the Labour Party at that time included Tony Benn, Roy Jenkins, George Brown, Jim Callaghan and Dennis Healy. Owen said if any two or three of these had joined forces, Wilson would have been out in 1969. During May 1969, the Private Eye magazine wrote of the annual May plot to unseat Mr Wilson making a joke of the opposition to Wilson within his own party. The left of the party were disappointed with Wilson as socialism had not been advanced the way they wanted it to be, while the right wing of the party and the Tories thought that the standards of society had been undermined by permissive legislation, divorce, marriage, family law, abortion and the rest, and also increasing welfare payments weakening the work ethic of the British
There was a general election in June 1970, which Labour lost. The Tory government, led by Ted Heath, ran into trouble with the unions almost at once, which saw constant strikes, with the situation worsening month by month. By 1972, the economy was in a dreadful mess, and again there was talk of a collapse of democracy and the need for action from the right-wing groups in Britain. Serious consideration was given to a military being called in as a result of a national emergency involving the 1964 Emergency Powers Act, which bypasses Parliament with the Secretive Defence Council in control. Whether this would have included a Mountbatten-type figure acting on behalf of the Crown was not known but it would seem likely. And Mountbatten himself was still involved in the background. Sections of the British right wing convinced themselves that the left wing, the old Communist Party and the radical new left, were working with the British trade union movement. This, this caused a self-fulfilling prophecy, as those on the left started to take themselves seriously as a real mass revolutionary party. The secret state had already began to take this threat seriously, in 1969, the, army, the British Army Land Manual had been revised to give greater prominence to domestic counter-subversive action. Shadowy right-wing pressure groups began to give funding to organisations working against subversion, or communist subversion. These organisations included the Economic League, later well-known for blacklisting left-wing workers. There was the Aims of Industry, which uh, promoted free market and combat nationalisation. There was the Common Cause, which was anti-communist. There was the there was IRIS, IRIS, an anti-socialist trade union body. And there was the Institute for the Study of Conflict, or ICS, which was a CIA-backed cultural freedom group. During the period 1970 to 74 there were elements of the Tory party that started to undermine their own MP, Ted Heath. They felt betrayed by, Health, uh, by Heath's economic U-turn, his quest to get the UK to join Europe, and the increasing numbers of Afro-Caribbean, African and Asian people coming to settle in the UK. The right wing of the Tories began discreet but open collaborations with the extreme right outside the Tory party. This gave local parties the green light to work with extremist groups, such as the National Front. During this period, there were various dirty tricks played by various groups on the right against each other. One such incident was letters stolen during a burglary which made their way to Private Eye magazine, stating the importance of the queer being dethroned, which was referring to Ted Heath, a group trying to put pressure on Tory MPs to get rid of Heath. By January 1974, it's possible that the right-wing groups were ready to overthrow a Tory government. Heath's policies had failed. There was a property and bank speculation fuelled by the expansion of the money, money supply, which was being transformed into massive inflationary pressures, inflation hitting 25% by the mid-1970s. Unemployment was rising, and the UK was put on a three-day week after the 1973 oil price rises. It seemed that Cecil King's fears were coming to fruition, but under a Tory government. Tony Benn wrote in his diary for the 6th of January 1974 that Heathrow has been defended by rings of police and the army with tanks. The rumour in the press was that there was intelligence of an impending a terror attack, 
but many people thought it was a ploy for the public to get used to seeing tanks and armed patrols on the street. Lord Carver, the head of the British Army, had gone on record to say that senior officers were talking about the possibility of military intervention during the strikes taking place, and some officers were even talking of a military coup. The media continued their onslaught against trade unions and the Labour Party, who were thought to support them. Newspapers claiming that the communists dictate Labour policy. On the 1st of February 1974, Chapman Pincher wrote in his Daily Express column about the existence of the secret vigilantes, which had formed to help the nation against the communist takeover. The secret vigilantes being organised by former service chiefs and ex-members of the Secret Service and MI5. They'd been recruiting for the past couple of years. There was a secret army ready to be called on during the, the time of emergency. Most of the media were running stories against the communist threat to the UK. Special branch provided armed guards for leading trade unionists after, trade, uh, after death threats. But these were thought of in a, as as an excuse for putting them under surveillance rather than any actual death threats. Harold Wilson was under surveillance throughout. It was said that if Wilson had won the February 1974 election, it would create even greater problems with the Arab states cutting off oil supplies given Wilson's pro-Israeli support. It was also thought that Wilson government could increase trade with Russia, leading to greater KGB activity in the UK, and Labour would reduce spending on the security services. In short, it was suggesting that if Labour won, then the UK would be in great peril. It was thought that the, UK, uh, that the Tories did not resort to using the smear stories that the security services had provided them with during the uh, February 1974 elections against Labour politicians because of the counter-smears that could be used against them, the Tory politicians. The February 1974 elections solved nothing. Although Labour formed a government on a wafer-thin majority, the country was split down the middle and the talk was all for a national unity government. Most of the media were Tory supporters, but libel laws prevented them from running most of their smear stories. The story that Wilson was a spy for the KGB came back fuelled by Czech defectors from the Prague Spring trying to make themselves sound important. There was stories about European, Euro, um, Eastern Europeans bankrolling the Labour Party, Marcia Williams having affairs with the KGB colonels, drugs and orgy stories, corruption, criminal land deals were all hinted at. Lots of smear stories were leaked to the Private Eye magazine, and almost all of them were directed against Labour. Some of the stories had a grain of truth, but they were, were then grotesquely twisted into something unrecognisable. MI5 were also busy in trying to find scandal on Labour politicians in the uh, UK. Ted Short had Swiss bank documents circulated suggesting that he was involved in corrupt practices. This was after his flat was burgled. These proved to have been forged, almost certainly by MI5. Short was, cer uh, Short was certain that MI5 had been involved, although senior Tory politicians claimed that it was a, a practical joke. The black propaganda being spread around the country was making groups in the UK very unhappy, especially the wealthy middle classes, for whom nothing seemed to be going right. Top rates for earned income were now 83%, and the tax rate at the top for unearned income was 98%. 
Labour was squeezing them until their pips squeaked, was how the Chancellor, Dennis Healy, described his policy. Some members of the middle class thought it was only a matter of time until society began to break down, which explains the reasons for the spread of the paramilitary groups being organised throughout the country. Private armies were being reported on during the 1974. They were a mixed bag. There were various organisations springing up to come to the country's rescue during the anticipated breakdown in law and order. Unison was one such army set up by George Kennedy Young, the former director of MI6. Unison was an organisation that specialised in spying and sabotage, targeting groups they suspected of being communist. Young was confident of the Daily Express's defence correspondent Chapman Pincher, who seemed to have a lot of contacts in those involved with private armies, saying that Unison would get involved in a crisis if there was a threat of civil conflict. Pincher had his contacts in MI5 and MI6 feeding him information, and it was supposed that he fed this intelligence on. Major Alexander Greenwood was the founder of Red Alert. Civil Assistance was a group set up by General Sir Walter Walker, who saw himself as a General de Gaulle-type figure to head the resistance against communist takeover and aid the civil authorities in case of a society breakdown. Walker was a powerful figure amongst the right-wing groups, who included Lord Mountbatten amongst his friends, and Mountbatten saying he was prepared to do whatever he could to help. Other groups included the British Volunteer Force, led by Paul Daniels, and GB75, led by the founder of SAS, David Sterling. He described his group as apprehensive patriots, ready to keep the country running during a national strike. GB75 was intended to be a paramilitary force who could take over government if it broke down. Colonel David Sterling discussed how to take out trade union leaders and other perceived enemies of the state. Influential ex-military leaders and security chiefs were in contact with armed forces to keep them informed of, deve of developments. The army were often seen on the street, supposedly on terror alert activities. This was a time of uh, IRA terror activities. There were some who thought uh, any coup would be a very British affair, where nobody would get hurt. They'd be offered cups of tea in cosy internment camps until the country sorted itself out. But this is not the image portrayed by GB75, who thankfully imploded soon after taking shape. Other groups included the Royal Society of St George and the PFP, the Philip for President, which was a national government headed by the Duke of Edinburgh, backed by the army, although this may have been a joke. A lot of the smaller private armies later formed merged to form the National Association for Freedom. This is today known as the Freedom Association. The group still exists and is known today for the pub quizzes with Jacob Rees-Mogg as quizmaster. On the 31st of August 1974, a proposal by a group of Tory MPs for a volunteer force to help the police and the maintenance of public order was leaked to the media. During this time, there were sections of the security services trying to persuade those on the right that Wilson was a proven communist, as were a good section of the Labour MPs. Files were readily shown to prominent right-wingers on key Labour politicians such as Byra Castle, Michael Foote, Tony Benn, 
Dennis Healy. They were all thought to be communist. Labour politicians were refused access to their own files. Indeed, when Harold Wilson insisted on seeing his file when he first became MP, sorry, first became Prime Minister in 1964, he was told that his file, his file had been destroyed that very morning. Maybe he should have asked to see the file named Norman John Worthington, the secret Harold Wilson file. During this time, MI5 were expanding their F-branch domestic counter-subversive unit, and the British Army had tested out their counterinsurgency methods in Northern Ireland. For example, Brigadier Kitson had created the Military Reconnaissance Force, the MRF, which were a mixed unit of turned IRA members and British soldiers on special detachment. By 1973 in Northern Ireland, there were Army undercover units, Army intelligence groups, the Information Research Development Department, the IRD, MI6, MI5, the RUC, that's the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC Special Branch, and the Ulster Defence Regiment, all operating, focusing on a few housing estates in Northern Ireland, all trying out new methods of citizen control. All of these groups were distrusted, as they were overwhelmingly Protestant. All of these forces distrusted the politicians in London, who they suspected of being susceptible to the idea of a political deal with the IRA to solve the Northern Irish problem. The main, prob the main culprits were being Labour politicians. All sorts of black propaganda were being used in Northern Ireland, sometimes servicing in the media, but for the most part shrouded in mystery by the security services, who were often in, com in competition with each other. Northern Ireland was in such a mess that there were stories, look up the doomsday document, that Wilson wanted to cut Northern Ireland off from the United Kingdom. In short, the problem in Northern Ireland had grown into a monumental mess that nobody was able to serve, to solve. The Labour government could not deal with the problems in Northern Ireland during 1974. The power-sharing executive that Labour had inherited from the Heath government was about to be wrecked by the Ulster Pro Protestants holding a general strike. Condone, condoned, it seemed, by the British Army, who were feeding the Labour politicians in London false information. <coughs> no matter what the Labour Party had done, there was not going to be a good outcome, so it's thought best to do nothing. Colin Wilson, or the Clockwork Orange Affair, which is worthy of a podcast by itself, shows how far out of control the MI5 were at the time. MI5 and the Army did not trust the Labour government, and kept them in the dark about developments. The Northern Ireland problem is so complicated that it will be considered in a later podcast. Wilson called for another general election for the 10th of October 1974, and in a speech during the September, Wilson had remarked how cohorts of distinguished journalists had been combing parts of the country with a mandate to find anything true or fabricated for use against the Labour Party. The actual election result was again deadlocked, with Labour ahead by just three seats. After the October 1974 election, the campaign against Wilson and the Labour government intensified. Various stories were reported. A favourite method used by the press was surfacing, when stories are planted in the foreign media and then imported back to Britain as news. All of the organisations that suggested a coup or national government always included the royal family in its planning. 
as it created a legitimacy for, con for a constitutional coup. Most of the supporters of these organisations didn't have loyalty to Parliament but to the Crown. The Conservative historian Lord Blake said that the power of the Crown is an emergency power in the era of democratic parties. When required to find an MP in a time of national crisis, which the ordinary system proves inadequate in order to guard against reckless, unnecessary general election, or in another scenario, a government, if a government, for partisan reasons, attempts to break the rules of constitution, or the unwritten constitution, and prolong itself in office. These powers are not less important for, not, for being rarely used. At the last resort, the Crown had the prerogative power to direct the use of troops. The Manual of Military Law, whatever that is, defines a situation in which the military may be called to aid civil powers. These would include a national emergency, the intimidation of workers, unlawful assembly, riot and insurrection. This would all be in line with the 1964 Emergency Powers Act, which only requires the authorisation of two members of the Defence Council. There are 11 members in total, mainly members of the armed forces, this all bypassing Parliament. However, during 1975, there seemed to have been a change of focus. It seems that right-wing groups in the country realised that a Labour government would be in a difficult position with a majority of just three seats, and decided on a more subtle tactic to concentrate on attempting a right-wing constitutional revolution rather than putting in an emergency national government and dealing with the problems that that would cause. Influential right-wingers started funding a group centred around Airy Neve, who had worked for MI5 and MI6. Neve told Heath to stand down and spun his political magic by networking and bringing together the establishment figures and the security services in order to form a, a government where business could flourish. Part of the plan was to get Thatcher elected as Tory leader. Neve was rebranding the Tory party after the failure of the previous 15 years. This did not rule out a possible coup at this time, but the preferred outcome was a rebranded Tory party winning a good majority of seats in a parliamentary election. Neve had been involved in the early plotting of a coup against Wilson back in 1968 and had been plotted against Wilson ever since. Neve, along with others, had planned to set up the Army of Resistance against the Wilson government to stop a communist takeover. There had been talk of assassinating senior Labour leaders. He had worked in conjunction with George Ke uh, Kennedy Young, the ex-deputy leader of the British Intelligence Service, MI6, against the Wilson government. Neve and Young would have been two key figures in any coup against the Labour government. Neve and Young were figures in an extreme right-wing group called Tory Action, which was at the centre of a smear campaign involving the Secret Services, aimed at discrediting the Labour Party. But now energies were being put into a new Tory party, a new type of conservatism that would be known later on as Thatcherism. Although the secret right-wing paramilitary armies were secretly maintained and modernised into the 1980s. Sir Anthony Farah Hockley, the former NATO commander of the Allied Forces Northern Europe, and Sir Walter Walker, another former head of NATO, being involved with their command. 
Neve did not live to see the Thatcher regime in power. He was assassinated in March 1979. It was claimed he was killed by the IRA, but many believe he was killed by rogue MI6 operatives who, in the same year, assassinated Lord Mountbatten, seemingly putting an end to any speculation about coups against elected governments in other matters that uh, could prove pr problematic. During 1975, Wilson had been told by various sources of the plotting by the security forces against him. But there was little he could do, as the organisations he was supposed to be able to investigate for him were the organisations that had been, he had been told were spying and plotting against him. Suites of the, uh, the Labour headquarters and Wilson's homes and office all revealed bugs. Wilson had been burgled several times, as had had colleagues and advisers. It's thought that MI5 and MI6, or operatives on their behalf, had been responsible for the break-ins. It's interesting to note that in similar actions in the USA had resulted in Watergate and the impeachment of President Nixon. But these break-ins were not even reported in the press in the UK. After one break-in at Wilson's home in Lord North Street, close to the Home Office in central London, personal tax papers were stolen and later offered a private eye magazine but they weren't deemed of any interest. At an office where Wilson, uh, that Wilson had in Buckingham Palace Road, personal papers and photographs were stolen, along with tape recordings Wilson had with his meetings with President Nixon and the audition leader Ian Smith. Marcia Williams had three break-ins at her home. During early 1975, not one newspaper reported on these break-ins or any of the other politicians that suffered the same fate that year in 1975. It was thought that all the break-ins were used to plant bugs as well as looking for any interesting information. The police investigated and came to the conclusion that MI5 were responsible. Wilson did recover some of his files. A well-known Soho character called Nicky Nichols paid £2,500 to a stranger to get them back. Wilson resigned as PM during March 2000. Uh, is that, I think Wilson resigned in. Oh, I've forgotten now. 1976. I think March 1976. So I've gone lost myself now. Where was I? Uh, yes, yeah, sorry about that. Wilson resigned uh, during March 76. Uh, James Callaghan took over as leader of the Labour Party and Prime Minister. There were various conspiracy theories as to why Wilson unexpectedly resigned, but on balance it seems that his health was failing and he was exhausted and it was said that he was drinking a bottle of brandy a day to cope with the pressures of being Prime Minister. A month after the resignation, Wilson contacted two BBC journalists, Penrose and Courtier, and told them about his suspicions about MI5 plotting against him and he asked them to investigate. There was a certain amount of game-playing with the MI5 as they tried to find out information. The journalists were set up and exposed as being gullible. There's an interesting film to watch about them on YouTube, which I recommend. It's called The Harold Wilson Plot. While searching for information, Penrose and Courtier came across the Norman Scott-Jeremy Thorpe affair in other affairs which seemed to upset the security services and cause deportations for journalists on the grounds of national security and arrests for offences under the Official Secrets Act. To find out more on this, look up the ABC trial. 
During March 1977, Penrose reported back on their research <coughs> to date, describing the Liberal Party murder conspiracy against Norman Scott. Wilson started to distance himself from the journalists after this. It was thought that as Wilson had suddenly resigned, it could be, he could be drawn into the Thorpe affair by a smear campaign. It seems that Wilson thought MI5 would be capable to spread stories about him being Thorpe's lover, and he was forced to resign to prevent exposure. During 1977, Wilson did try to get his former colleague and now Prime Minister Jim Callaghan to look into the MI5 plotting and spying against him. This resulted in Tory MPs accusing Wilson of shaking public confidence in MI5, as well as breaking the Official Secrets Act and his oath as Privy Councillor by telling journalists of his fears. Other members of the Labour Party accused Wilson of being paranoid. Wilson asked Callaghan to instigate an inquiry into the allegations of electronic bugging against him, but he was told that although there had been much written about and spoken about, there was little hard fact, and the allegations were dismissed. Some people were amazed that Wilson had asked for an inquiry, as it was never going to happen. The idea that the Crown would appoint an inquiry into its own secret service was absurd. Wilson distanced himself from the plotting allegations and since 1978 had not mentioned the matter. Wilson was worn out after all his years in office. He was suffering perhaps early uh, Alzheimer's and a loss of memory. There's been suggestions that Wilson's memory loss was due to the result of an anaesthetic he was given. In one version it was an accidental overdose, in another it was a secret state trying to shut him up. Watching Harold Wilson night, a BBC programme to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Harold Wilson becoming Prime Minister, which is available on YouTube. Douglas Hurd, who was Private Secretary to Edward Heath, the Tory leader during the time Wilson was Labour leader, said that claims that there was a right-wing queue against Wilson was plain dotty. The country was split in 1974. Senior Tories would have considered the prospect for the Crown to use its prerogative powers to direct the use of troops to be ordered to do whatever the Crown thought fit to maintain the internal security and support the emergency government. The 1964 Emergency Powers Act had been replaced by the Civil Contingencies Act 2004. The Act puts power in the hands of the Crown, and there seems to be a lot of riddle room for interpretations of the Act to be given. This is, of course, partly down to the fact that the UK has its unwritten constitution, which allows a lot of interpretation, which means that certain powerful people have a loophole to do whatever they want. Some of the actions taken by the security services in the UK during Wilson's time, when he was Prime Minister, were criminal. We mentioned already that there was the Watergate scandal, which brought down the president. What actually happened in the UK was probably worse. But if the press, if they did know about it, they were silenced by D-notices, which were directives sent to the news editors not to publish or broadcast items on specific subjects for reasons of national security. The security services were working on the assumption that there was a Soviet mole or Soviet agent working at the top of the British government possibly Harold Wilson, and this would prove a useful excuse for them to hide behind. Lord Mountbatten, the senior member of the intelligence groups, and the armed forces all conspired against the government and brought the UK to the brink of a coup after undermining democracy, but absolutely nothing was ever done about it. MI5 produced its own internal inquiry 
and found itself innocent of any illegal actions. Peter Wright was later proved to be one of the MI5 agents working against Wilson and his Labour governments. He fell out with the security services they did not get the pension he thought he was entitled to. Wright had leaked much of the material for Chapman's pincher to write his 1981 best-selling book, Their Trade is Treachery. Wright moved to Tasmania and decided to write his own bestseller, which was called Spycatcher, which the Tory government of the time tried to ban in the 1980s. <clears throat> it was a well-written book and filled with unprecedented detail about the British intelligence activities, how MI5 bugged and burgled its way across London in the world. The first official history of MI5 was a book called The Defence of the Realm. It was released in 2009. This book confirmed that there was a plot against Wilson and there were files against him. However, it stated that the plot was the work of a small group of discontented officers, the, the uh, Gestapo, who were right-wing malicious and had serious personal, personal grudges. So a response to Wright's book, whereby MI5 thought they could wash their hands of the past by blaming their own staff for their past crimes, when the intelligence services were so clearly out of control. I think we, we, we can be quite sure that um, MI5 would not have admitted any of this if it wasn't for the, the leaks uh, made by Peter Wright to Chapman Pincher and in his own book Spycatcher. Anyhow, that's today's episode. Um, I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music and hope to produce another podcast shortly. So I'll say goodbye now and thank you for listening. Goodbye.